European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 38, Issue 30, Focus Issue on Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Update on Heart Failure Biomarkers, Intensive Therapy, Remote Monitoring, and Cardiomyocyte Renewal Heart failure is a rapidly moving field of cardiology, in particular with regards to heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, while heart failure with preserved ejection fraction remains enigmatic and still waits for an effective treatment strategy. The diagnosis of heart failure relies on patient history, clinical symptoms, imaging, and more recently, also on biomarkers. While brain natriuretic peptide is well established in the diagnostic algorithm, the role of novel biomarkers is still uncertain. In their current opinion, do we need another heart failure biomarker? If so, which one? Alan Maisel and Salvatore Di Somma from the San Diego Veterans Affairs Medical Center and University of California in the USA dwell on this issue. They note that heart failure biomarkers should be either sensitive or provide rule-out information. Furthermore, a biomarker should give insights into pathophysiologic mechanisms and should also be prognostic. The biomarkers that are here to stay are those that can provide personalized treatment within the scope of the clinical presentation, along with physician equipoise. The major biomarkers used for heart failure are natriuretic peptides. However, it now appears that SS2T is of greater value in the clinic as well as in the hospital and may indeed become the hemoglobin A1C of heart failure. Indeed, serial SS2T levels should allow us to titrate therapy and monitor the clinical state of the patient. In addition, since SS2T is such a strong marker of the risk of death, it may help in decision-making when patients are considered for implantable cardioverter defibrillators, cardiac resynchronization therapy, cardiomems, or left ventricular assist devices. The treatment of heart failure is largely palliative in nature. Indeed, while neurohumeral blockade proved highly effective, any attempt to improve the pump function of the heart itself failed miserably. Thus, a lot of hope rested on regenerative medicine and stem cell therapy. However, the capacity of the mammalian heart to regenerate cardiomyocytes has been heavily debated over the last decades. In a timely clinical review entitled Cardiomyocyte Renewal in the Human Heart, Insights from the Fallout, Olaf Bergmann and colleagues from the Technische Universität Dresden in Germany remind us that the limitations in existing techniques to track and identify nascent cardiomyocytes have often led to inconsistent results. Nevertheless, 14C birth dating, in combination with other quantitative strategies, allows the establishment of the number and age of human cardiomyocytes. This makes it possible to assess their age distribution and turnover dynamics. Accurate estimates of cardiomyocyte generation in the adult heart can provide the basis for novel regenerative strategies that aim to stimulate cardiomyocyte renewal in various cardiac pathologies.
Until effective regeneration strategies are developed, physicians are left with drugs interfering with neurohumoral activation. While up-titration of heart failure drugs appears effective, the role of comprehensive heart failure programs is still uncertain. This issue is addressed in a fast track entitled Standard versus Intensified Management of Heart Failure to Reduce Healthcare Costs Results of a Multicenter Randomized Controlled Trial by Simon Stewart and colleagues from the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, Australia. The authors investigated whether an intensified heart failure management program based on individual profiling may be superior to standard care in reducing healthcare costs during 12-month follow-up as a primary endpoint. Overall, in an intention-to-treat cohort of 787 patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction discharged from four tertiary hospitals were randomized to either strategy. According to green-amber-red delineation of risk and need in HF, or Guardian HF, profiling, regardless of location, patients in the intensified form of heart failure management program received a combination of face-to-face home visits and structured telephone support. The median cost of applying intensified form of heart failure management program was significantly greater than standard management. However, at 12 months, there was no difference in total healthcare costs for the intensified form of heart failure management program versus standard management group. This reflected in minimal differences in all-cause mortality of 17.7% versus 18.4% and recurrent hospital stay of 18.6 plus or minus 26.6 versus 16.6 plus or minus 24.8 days between the intensified form of heart failure management program and standard care, respectively. Thus, during 12 months follow-up, an intensified form of heart failure management did not reduce healthcare costs or, importantly, improve healthcare outcomes relative to standard care. These disappointing findings are further discussed in an editorial by Mark Pfeffer from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Remote monitoring has been recommended for the management of heart failure patients. John Mark Morgan and colleagues from Southampton University Hospitals in Hampshire, UK, investigated this approach further in the next research manuscript entitled Remote Management of Heart Failure Using Implantable Electronic Devices. The REMHF trial aimed to assess the clinical and cost-effectiveness of remote monitoring of heart failure in patients with implanted cardiac electronic devices. They randomly assigned 1,650 patients with heart failure and an implanted cardiac electronic device to remote monitoring or usual care. The remote monitoring pathway included formalized remote follow-up protocols. The primary endpoint in the time-to-event analysis was the first event of death from any cause or unplanned hospitalization for cardiovascular reasons. Secondary endpoints included death from any cause, death from cardiovascular reasons, death from cardiovascular reasons and unplanned cardiovascular hospitalization, unplanned cardiovascular hospitalization, and unplanned hospitalization during a follow-up of 2.8 years. 
the incidence of the primary endpoint did not differ significantly between remote monitoring and usual care groups, which occurred in 42.4% and 40.8% of patients respectively. There were no significant differences between the two groups with respect to any of the secondary endpoints or the time to the primary endpoint components. Thus, it appears that among patients with heart failure and a cardiac implanted electronic device, remote monitoring using weekly downloads and a formalized follow-up approach does not improve outcomes. These provocative results are put into perspective with the recent literature in a thoughtful editorial by Jagmeet P. Singh from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, USA. Currently, no acute heart failure therapy definitively improves outcomes. Indeed, just recently, another remedy, the vasodilator serolaxin, failed its primary endpoint. Reducing morbidity and mortality from acute heart failure therefore remains an unmet need. In a clinical research manuscript entitled Biased Ligand of the Angiotensin II Type 1 Receptor in Patients with Acute Heart Failure, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled Phase 2b dose-ranging trial, BLAST-AHF. Peter S. Pang and colleagues from the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, USA, evaluated TRV-027, which is a novel biased ligand of the angiotensin II type 1 receptor, selectively antagonizing the negative effects of angiotensin II while preserving the potential pro-contractility effects of AT1 receptor stimulant. BLAST-AHF was designed to determine the safety, efficacy, and optimal dose of TRV-027 to advance into future studies. It was a multicenter, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group, phase 2b dose-ranging study, enrolling patients with acute heart failure into four groups, placebo, 1 mg per hour, 5 mg per hour, or 25 mg per hour of TRV-027, applied intravenously over 48 to 96 hours. The primary composite endpoint was 1. Time from baseline to death through day 30, 2. Time from baseline to heart failure rehospitalization through day 30, 3. The first assessment time point following worsening heart failure through day 5, 4. Change in dyspnea visual analog scale score calculated as the area under the curve representing the change from baseline over time from baseline through day 5, and 5. Length of initial hospital stay from baseline. Overall, 621 patients were enrolled. After 254 patients, a pre-specified interim analysis led to protocol changes, including a lower blood pressure inclusion criterion, as well as a new allocation scheme of 2 to 1 to 2 to 1, overweighting both placebo and the 5 mg per hour dose. While there were no safety issues, TRV-027 did not confer any benefit over placebo at any dose with regards to the primary composite endpoint or any of its components. 
Thus, novel biased ligand and angiotensin II type 1 receptor TRV027 does not improve clinical status through 30-day follow-up. These again sobering results are discussed in depth in an editorial by John C. Burnett from the Mayo Clinic and Foundation in Rochester, USA. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.